right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global. Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited-time 2% cashback on purchases and pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. Hello, this is Let's Talk About Myths, baby, and I'm your host, she who loves Euripides with a fiery passion, particularly having read the Alcestis, Liv. Today, I am here, as promised, with more on the Alcestis, including more historical details that are going to blow your mind. Today, I spoke with fan favorite guest. You all know and love her from the episode on Persephone from last year. That's right, it's Dr. Ellie Mackin Roberts, who also has a badass TikTok about ancient nerdery. Ages ago, Ellie suggested that she would want to come back on the show to talk about the Alcestis, so when I knew I was going to cover it, I reached out immediately. And when I started actually getting into the play and writing the episodes, whew, oh, I only wanted to talk to her about it even more. This play is fucking wild. You will hear how eager I was in the very beginning of this episode because truly I I finished recording the episodes for the play and then was like, oh my God, I just can't wait to talk about it some more because it is so fascinating. And Ellie's insights, oh my God, only add so, 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 so much more to the way that I told the story. So I'm so excited for you all to hear all of this. So much more context, historical bits and pieces, so much Euripides talk, but oh my God, it's the Alcestis, right? 
Like I said, Ellie and I talked about Euripides, his career, how tragedy performances came to be, when and where they were performed, and in which competitions and circumstances, what he maybe is or is not doing within the Alcestis, and so much more. We talked for a while, too, so I'm just going to dive right into that conversation. Because Euripides and the Alcestis and wild and wacky tragic comedy or whatever on earth Euripides has bestowed upon us within this play. Fuck, I love him so much. He's so weird and wonderful. Plus, bonus, dicks on sticks. So many dicks on sticks. Just you wait. Conversations, Schrodinger's Alcestis, theories on the how and why behind Euripides' play, with Dr. Ellie Mackin-Roberts. Thank you so much for doing this again. (laughs) I'm so excited. This is like one of the only times I've come into a conversation just being like, I have so many things to both say, but also ask you about, but I'm going to (laughs) this play. No. So only like I, so just the background on it is that I had never read it and I had just, yes. So awesome. Like I, I had never read it. All I knew was it's a Euripides tragedy and it involves a woman dying and Heracles bringing her back from the dead. And that's all I knew. So my brain went like, cool, this is a Euripides tragedy in the vein of Bacchae, Medea, <laughs> like Phoenician women, like all these different plays that I've no. covered. <laughs> And then I started oh, no. reading it and I was like, oh my God, what is this? And I just had so much fun retelling it just now because yeah, because oh no, no, it's not any of those things. It is the weirdest, most ridiculous, but also like wonderful in how ridiculous it is. Yeah. And so, yeah, like what makes this a play that, I mean, I also specifically remember you were just like I'll ha- I'll talk about Alcestis and so as soon as I was going to cover it I was like great perfect I have this guest lined up so what makes it the play that you just like want to talk about um I just love it I just think it's like it's unlike any other play that we have extant I mean that doesn't mean that it's unlike any other play that was staged mm-hmm. but you know <sighs> I don't know. I, some of the things that I love about it kind of feed into, you know, a lot of my other interests around death and and concepts of, of death and staging death and, and ideas around who dies and why and how. Um, but I, there's also like a really interesting political background to mm. it Ooh. Um, that, you know, uh, we don't have a lot of uh, real detail about, um, but there are some like you know interesting kind of tidbits that that sort of lead on to you know what why this play was even staged potentially why this play was staged, um, and but I mean like I can just jump in if you want, please. I mean what I know what I read like just I basically just read the introduction to the edition that I have, which was pretty 
interesting. Um, but it was like, it's his earliest extant play that we have, right? Like it's the earliest surviving one, but he was writing for a long time before that. Is that right? Oh yeah, definitely. Like he yeah. uh, had staged his first play that we know of staged his first play 18 years yeah. prior. Okay. So he'd been writing for quite some time. Um, though we don't know how many uh, times he was selected um, right. in those 18 years to participate in the Dionysia. Um, like there are other dramatic festivals that he maybe was also um, participating in. But so for, for the city Dionysia, three um, playwrights were selected uh, to present four plays each. Mm-hmm. Um, and we don't really know how that process went whether you know they uh, just had like a bit of an idea about what they wanted to put on and they went to the archon and said oi I'd quite like to put these plays on what do you reckon do you want to pick me Um, or whether they you know composed sections of the plays or or however that went Um, but it's likely that he'd been picked like at least sort of three or four times. Okay. So it probably wasn't his first period of time. No. Um he this set of of plays came second uh to Sophocles. Um I don't know what play I should have looked at this and I just didn't. Um I don't know what plays won that year. Uh, but they're not ex- plays that we have extant. Yeah. Do we know what other plays that Euripides staged with this? So we do. The plays were uh, four unconnected plays. So mm-hmm. this. So I think people often have this idea that, particularly because we have Aeschylus's Oresteia, that trilogies were the standard way that, mm. and that it just wasn't. Um, no, yeah. We know that there are three uh, sets of trilogies that we know about, one of which is the Oresteia. Um, but it seems like by the time Euripides was kind of writing and definitely by the time this set of four plays was staged in 438, that the, the practice of, of having trilogies was gone. Um, so there were four unconnected plays there were Cretan women Alcmaeon in uh, Sophus um, Telephus and Alcestis um, Telephus is a really interesting play as well it, uh, the, the other three plays are not extant Telephus is often called uh, Euripides most famous lost play and it, it's about this Greek hero who by marriage uh, becomes the king of this town um, in the Troad and then so during the Trojan War is on the side of the Trojans and it's kind of uh, about, uh, anyway, he gets wounded by Achilles um, and this is before the war happens, he gets wounded by Achilles uh, and he has to, he gets told that the only way that the wound will heal is if um, the 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 perpetrator heals it with the weapon that cut him. Um, so mm. he sneaks into the Greek camp and uh, holds the baby Orestes hostage um, and 
it kind of gets Achilles to come and, and heal him and it's sort of all fine. But then it plays with this really interesting kind of aspect of this Greek hero who is the king of a Trojan-aligned town and where does his loyalty lie? And in the end, you know, from what we understand, it seems like he helps the Greeks get into Troy, not into the city, but um, sort of uh, around, mm-hmm. helps them get to Troy um, in some way. But, yeah, it plays with this this idea of what loyalty is to, you know, his wife and her family and, you know, his adopted city um, or to, you know, his heritage, which is Greek. Uh, so, yeah, it's really interesting. Um, it's one of those many times where I think, why do we have so much Menander and we don't have this play? <laughs> I mean, the plays that I want to read. Like, I just want to read all of them. It makes me so angry. I think about it all the time. I, I just like... Yeah. We used to play this real well, sometimes we still do. Um, when I was like an undergraduate and during my master's, we used to play this game uh, often at the pub, which I'm not sure made us the most popular pub goers. <laughs> But it was like a what would you give back to take? <laughs> and you had to do like an exact one for one. Um, and then everybody else in the group had to decide whether your one for one was a genuine one for one. So like I used to always say like I would give back Menander's Perichromony because I had to translate that entire play in my last year and I absolutely hate it. So I would give that back and I want Aeschylus' Iphigenia. But that never was, like, considered a one-for-one trade. Like, you've always got to give more back. Um, well, especially with, yeah, I mean. Especially I with mean, Menanda. I yeah, I can't even it. name anything. No, it's more like I don't even, like, if you would have told me to, like, name somebody, I would have just never even, I feel like I've never encountered any of his. So, and granted, like, I'm not as deep in the drama yet because I'm getting closer and closer. But like, yeah, no. Yeah, it doesn't seem like a one for one. (laughs) No, no. But that sounds like a game that like just for Alcestis. And I appreciate that. Yeah. Tradesies. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. But I mean, as for Alcestis, it's not a fair one for one trade. (laughs) (laughs) I just... The idea that like the whole of the play is like, oh my God, what a great wife she was. She gave up her life for you. She's just so great. What a great lady. She's so loyal. She's so honorable. She's so wonderful. And it's like, can we all look at just the whole concept of this generally, the very notion that like this man is going around and there's, I I don't know if there's an argument to be made that he is like forced to do this but to me it really seems like he could just be like okay no i'll just die like i'll i'll just go ahead and do what the fates originally said like in which case it's it's just a matter of him being like no i really don't wanna somebody else do it for me yeah i've got i've wrote down this really great quote um from uh, an article called euripides alcestis female death and male tears (laughs) which is brilliant by seagal and he says this Admetus's grieving starts out with a load of egotism and selfishness that probably remains too heavy to be lifted by his experience of change. And that to me just like sums up who Admetus is as a person. Um, like he's very 
selfish and egotistical. And in a lot of ways, I think, you know, I definitely am very hard on him as a person. I, I don't like him. Uh, and I think a lot of people are very hard on him. But he's not tragically flawed. Um, mm. Like he's just a very, like he's he's flawed in myriad ways, <laughs> but not tragically flawed. Like he does seem to be trying to do the right thing, to do, you know, a thing which, you know, this God has has done this amazing, given him this amazing gift. And it's almost like he sort of doesn't really know what to do with it. But he's he's just this man who has lived this very incredibly privileged life um, who, you know, was given this gift and he just assumed that he would be able to find somebody to, to you know, take on this burden for him. And he does and it's a, a person that he doesn't, want to to have to do that um and I think in a lot of ways like he feel he he feels really trapped um between you know like giving up Alcestis sort of allowing her to to die in this way to sacrifice herself um and you know like it's a very it must be a very difficult position to be put in to have a God say to you, you know, you've been really kind to me and therefore I want to give you this gift. And then to turn around and say, actually, thanks, but no thanks. Because um, that also wouldn't have ended like really well for them. Mm. Um, one imagines, you know. Yeah, I often I have wondered about that because to me, like, of course, I mean, it is the gods. So you have to assume they'd be pissed off just that like their will got kind of discounted. But to me, like a, a, a play that and I mean, this, this is a lot about what I think Euripides is trying to do with this play, but like a play that wants to be a tragedy in the vein of more traditional tragedies would have this whole question ended with him sacrificing himself. You know, like it would it would be more a play about the choice and falling on the side of, no, I don't want my beloved wife to die for me. I will just go and kill myself, you know, and I think that's what makes oh, his that's choice. So interesting that you say that. Because I, I think that's what makes his decision to make this like a tragic comic, like a, a, a thing that is more instead of examining the question of sacrifice and life and death and, and yourself versus somebody you love that much, instead of it being that question, it's more of a question of like, okay, well, what if somebody is so, so selfish and narcissistic that they simply can't visit that question? Instead, the choice is made because they, it just like, no, I'm not going to die. So who's going to die for me? It's not a question of whether I die or not. It's like, okay, how do I deal with the person who does die on my behalf because he clearly like it just having just read like every second of it and with my head like perpetually exploding uh he doesn't ever look at it and think like 
I made this call. He just is like, it's so sad for me. <laughs> like, yeah. how can I live without her? I want to throw myself in her grave. And I'm just like, you literally could have died instead of her. <laughs> yeah. I. That's the one thing that I... Oh, just listening to him, like, go, I can't live without you. Oh, and it's on and on and on and on. Um, And, you know, I get that he's, like, going through this really deep process of grief and loss and anger. And probably for somebody, like, in his hyper-privileged position, you know, and not kind of a grief or loss that you would ever imagine mm. going through. Um, not that, you know, these kind of people didn't lose wives in particular. They would have probably in childbirth very frequently in the real, well, not very frequently, but, you know, frequently mm. enough in the real world. Um, it's interesting that you say that to make it a tragedy for you, it would be him sacrificing himself. Because I think, or it would be her, uh, but it would be like about that instead of the call is already made, you know. Oh yeah, okay, that's interesting. Because I would say that, like, to me, the obvious, obvious, mm-hmm. um, you know, point of it becoming a tragedy is that he gets to the end and makes the other decision. Mm. So we can't. So what I mean is, like, he's gone through this massive process of grief and loss. He makes these promises um, and kind of says these things, which are really very unrealistic. He promises Alcestis that he'll never get married again. Um, he completely denounces his family. Uh, you know, he says he's never going to stop mourning. He kind of really becomes this solo entity, like completely consumed by her dying, and and like unaware that he is the reason that she's dying like you know as you've said um and it's really unbearable but as he's kind of starting to come out of this really volatile stage of grief after her funeral sort of right at the end um that's when the table really gets flipped on him and Heracles comes back with this woman who he says He's won in an athletic contest. Uh, And to me, like, the point of tragedy would be if he didn't eventually acquiesce Mm. and take Alcestis, who he doesn't know Mm. is Alcestis, back. If he had been like, no, I'm not going to do it. I promised Alcestis. Uh, I'm deep in my grief. I can't think of anything beyond my own grief and, you know, but he doesn't. Um, And that's the point that it kind of turns from tragedy to not tragedy when he marries her again. And, you know, this is a really symbolic, a really interesting symbolic thing about like it's very clear, Heracles is very clear that he can't just get somebody else to take her into the house he has to grab her. He grabs her with his by the wrist with his right hand. Like this is a really clear, symbolic, stereotypical marriage gesture. We see it in marriage iconography. We see it in um, other literature on marriage. Like this is the point when 
a man grabs his bride by the wrist like that is the thing that that's you know, so interesting we, we know that you know pots are marriage scenes because they have this gesture hmm. um and there's some other stuff that like other kinds of iconography that subverts that and this is kind of euripides in a sense playing with i think i don't know mm. playing with that subversion almost like subverting the subversion of it um you know and that's when it becomes kind of when heracles is like yeah this is what's going on right she's not going to speak for three days until like you've got a purifier and then she's not going to speak for three days but then everything will be like back to normal and it'll be great and you know admetus is like oh let's have a party and then it's all you know back to admetus being like the person who everything works out for all the time which completely explains his attitude throughout the entire play. Like I think, you know, that would be the point of it being tragic if he stayed resolved Mm -hmm. and didn't, didn't. Yeah. And then she just got, she got taken away. Woman back in. Yeah. Yeah. Um, But then for it to be tragic, it would have to be revealed to him Mm -hmm. that it was Alcestis, you know, in the same way that like at the end of Hippolytus, after it's already too late and Hippolytus is going to die, Theseus gets told that actually, like, he was innocent mm-hmm. uh, the whole time. And then Theseus has to kind of live with that, which I don't mind because Theseus is a prick. <laughs> yeah. <it's- laughs> but, you know, Admetus isn't. Admetus is not a bad guy. He's a no. horribly insufferable man. But he's just a guy who has had everything handed to him and everything has always magically worked out for him before. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's like the whole backstory. And, you know, I'm sure that you kind of went into this in your like deep dive episodes, um, not just kind of retelling the play, um, but kind of going into that background that Euripides doesn't really talk about. He kind of alludes to it. Um, no, I I think I did not do any of this. So please share <laughs> with oh, plays. I, well. I have, because I do not have access to academic stuff. I'm like, I'm going to retell the play with what I can. But so please oh. tell me. Oh, <laughs> okay. So, um, so there's a, a two, uh, I mean, two very interesting stories about Admetus. The second being his marriage to Alcestis, right? But the first is why Apollo is there in the first place. And Euripides doesn't really go into the the background of this, but he does put in like a couple of little interesting, like almost Easter egg kind of tidbits that like obliquely allude to this background. So the basic story is really like the fullest version that we have is in Pseudo-Apollodorus, which is like first, second century CE. Um, It's very likely that... Uh, at least some of this was told in Hesiod's Lost Catalogue of Women. Um, mm. There's a reference to it in the Iliad. Uh, there is an earlier play, like a generation earlier than Euripides, that was an Alcestis. We don't know what part. Like, was it the same? We don't know. Um, by Phrynichus, uh, 
some scholars think it was a, a true satyr play rather than a tragedy, um, mm. but actually I think most scholars more recently consider it to be a tragedy, which kind of demonstrates that the Alcestis is a tragic story. So that was uh, 30 to 40 years before Euripides' play that would have been mm. staged. Um, and then the earliest uh, really version um, of the uh, Apollo backstory um, is early 5th century BCE. Um, obviously that's a lost source. So this is really retold uh, with fragmentary inclusions in Pseudo-Apollodorus. And so essentially uh, Zeus had killed uh, Apollo's son Asclepius um, because he had learned to raise the dead uh, using, anyway, that's not, that's no, what now I done. want to retell all of this. So yeah, don't too much. I'm realizing this is the first time ever that I didn't go to theoi.com. I just read through the play because I was, unfortunately, I'm rushing things right now before I leave. And I'm like, man, what was I thinking? I'm always the one who's like going to go through and find all these random little sources and things. So yeah, but now you get to, to hear it. Yeah, I'll just so, back. <laughs> so this all begins when Zeus kills Asclepius. Um, and at, at some point, the chorus of old men in Euripides' play says, if only we had an Asclepius to come and raise Alcestis after she died. Mm. So there's kind of like, yeah, that little oblique reference. So anyway, Apollo is pissed off about this but obviously he can't like take his vengeance out on Zeus because that would be never pure idiocy so instead he kills the Cyclopes who make Zeus's thunderbolts because of course you do and then Zeus is like really really annoyed by this and he is going to send Apollo down to Tartarus but um, Leto comes in and kind of smooths things over with Zeus. And so Zeus decides in the end that he's just going to send uh, Apollo to serve uh, a mortal for a year. In some versions, it's longer, nine years. Um, mm. Nine years is a really interesting purification, mythic purification-related number. Um, and uh, so, for instance, Apollo is exiled for nine years after killing Python um, mm -hmm. as in purification. Um, so he's sent to uh, serve Admetus. Um, and this kind of then intersects, that story then intersects with the meeting of Admetus and Alcestis. Um, there's a really interesting retelling of this uh by Catherine uh, Butner in a novel that's just called Alcestis although I think she kind of plays with some of the details it is a genuinely really good retelling from Alcestis's perspective of the whole wow. the whole saga so Alcestis's dad uh sets a challenge for suitors for Alcestis uh obviously that's a thing that you know powerful men all the do time. yeah um and so in some versions he sets this test that uh whoever can 
yoke a lion and a boar to a chariot will win her hand. Um, in other versions, uh, this is just put to Admetus for various reasons. Uh, obviously, it's completely like impossible to do, but Alcestis's father does not know that uh, Admetus's servant is divine. And so with Apollo's help, he uh, pulls this chariot um, with a lion and a boar and gets uh, wins Alcestis. Um, but then on their wedding night, he doesn't appropriately uh, sacrifice to Artemis mm. at their wedding feast. And then on their wedding night, uh, she fills their uh, marriage chamber up with snakes um, and curses Admetus to an early death. And so that's how uh. this all begins. Uh. And then Apollo get essentially gets the Moirai drunk and <laughs> that I read. gets them to uh, to agree to this uh, trade soul for soul. And then no one wants to do it. In uh, Butner's novel, it's, there's this really brilliant kind of are they just roommates relationship that Apollo and Admetus have, which is not borne out in the ancient source material, but I like that. I mean, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Apollodorus records that there are two different potential endings the first is the one that Euripides tells um where Heracles fights Thanatos uh, at the graveside I like the word fights <laughs> yeah wrestles. my translation is like he squeezes him real tight <laughs> <laughs> yeah there's uh it reminds me a lot every time I read it I think of um Olympic Greco-Roman wrestling mm. you know really like very highly not scripted because it's not scripted but you know that that constrained by rules mm. but then the other version that apollodorus pseudo apollodorus records is that uh, she actually dies and persephone sends her back oh, to wow. admetus so that's quite lovely um it is possible that these sort of the two separate myths like the apollo punishment going to Admetus and the Alcestis story, death story, were originally two separate myths um, and that they had just kind of been joined together by whether that was because, you know, Apollo served Admetus and uh, Alcestis married Admetus and maybe originally they were different Admetuses and then got mashed up together um, or not. We don't really know. Um, and we don't really know like how much of this background story Euripides's audience would have known certainly older members perhaps would have remembered uh, that earlier play though probably it was long enough ago that they wouldn't remember details like specific plot points it seems likely that there were you know in the by the early fifth century that this parts of this story were well known um, but we don't really know how much of what Apollodorus relates would have been known um, 
in the the early fifth century, uh, and then certainly like in the four thirties. That's what I found interesting in reading the introduction and stuff. Is just like the idea that unlike a lot of of like tragedies that we know of, at least like they wouldn't have been super familiar with the myth at all, and so it would have been a bit more of like a mystery i do like uh so the part of the story that i did tell was just whatever is included in in the little like prologue that apollo gives but that is one of the other things that i found so interesting is just i mean the structure of this play broadly is really interesting um but like just that it starts out with apollo and then it's like oh well here comes thanatos like we're gonna have a little bicker and then the gods are gone. And then the the fact that the gods open the play and then just leave and don't come leave. back is really yeah. interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Because usually you do get that kind of like deus ex machina at the end. Mm-hmm. Well, in Euripides, especially, you know. But like, you know, we have like a handful of plays out of hundreds and hundreds of plays. Um I was reading something like tangentially the other day about Electra um, mm. and this, you know, argument that like, oh, Electra must have been a particularly good tragic uh, subject because we have three plays about her. But like, you know, we have two Alcestises just because we don't have them extant. Um, we have several Iphigenians. You know, we have like weird... Uh, tragedies actually my friend sent me a text um shout out to uh, kate cook who i've been talking about alcestis with for the last couple mm. of days as i kind of like percolate my thoughts and she was telling me about this very weird an insane story where the guy and the snake and the resurrection and some sort of competition about describing a mulberry bush and divination we don't know anything else about the play except that that's what happens. That's like Wow. It's not even a name yeah. of it. It's just that's it. No. That's it. <laughs> and you know, we have several Niobes. Um you know, so the idea that I don't know, it's difficult. Cause at, uh, on the one hand we have to work with the corpus that we have. Right? Um sadly. But on the other hand, yeah, you know, we make these sweeping judgments um about like oh our Kestis is so weird but is it weird we don't know like we just mm-hmm. don't know how weird it is um the thing that i think is particularly weird about the alkestis is not actually to do with it it's to do with the fact that it's not a satyr play mm-hmm. uh, that it's presented in the satyr slot yeah, that's one thing I didn't bring it up often because I figured you and I would talk about it because that yeah. alone is is really interesting. Yeah, so it's like presented in this fourth spot um, and which is normally a say to play. And these are normally the same kinds of subject, mythic subject matter as tragedies, um, but far more free uh, in their in what the playwrights can do with them. Like they can invent new stories, particularly about, you know, these established mythic characters um, interacting with satyrs. And, of course, you know, the most well-known fact about satyr plays is that the choruses are satyrs and there's lots of, like, massive dicks. Can I say dicks? Yeah, please. (laughs) Okay. 
there's a lot you can say worse (laughs) (laughs) you know they'll wear these huge phalluses and you know that's I think probably people have this idea that like oh it's really subversive but like if there's three of them every year isn't that subversive probably not didn't Um, the Dionysia too like the whole procession also to like start the celebrations didn't that also also involve a whole lot of like dicks on sticks and just phalluses everywhere oh i mean like the whole greek world is dicks on sticks (laughs) you know they um i I had a tiktok taken down for breaking community guidelines (laughs) violations today because i had um made another video with just like an uh, sort of an excerpt from uh, part of Lysistrata and someone had commented oh there's no porn in you know the age when Lysistrata was written so I just <laughs> made this video with just like this really I'm not surprised it got taken down <laughs> but just like this I mean, really explicit like images on pots um, I mean yeah I was gonna say the pottery my, alone like yeah <laughs> like yeah I, I didn't include, but one of my favourite pots is uh, of a woman who is, like, just dressed nice. She's got, like, a basket of what appears to be seeds and she's, like, sewing them on the ground and (laughs) growing dicks. (laughs) And they're they're just, you know, so it's not, you know, and, of course, they had the herms. Yeah. Which were those, like, protective. Yeah. Who I mean, who doesn't love a like a slab with a face and a dick? I mean, I I take it upon myself, I think, to tweet or just say, but it's become like a running joke between me and particularly the women of ancient history fangirl. But just love a herm, love a herm. Just let me talk about herms at any given time. The fact that they were just a head on a plinth with the dick all over town is just one of the greatest facts there is about ancient yeah. Greece generally. <laughs> and the fact that they were like very clearly highly highly revered um, and you know we know that from a lot of reasons but particularly from the fact that when one night all the dicks disappeared <laughs> that there was like a huge like a political crisis. Yeah. Did not Kapiades have to is- like flee the city? <laughs> Oh yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> he he did, um, and you know it was like credited with the downfall of Athens's supremacy. I because you that. know, well, like, so Alcibiades was meant to lead the um, Sicilian expedition. This whole mutilation of the terms thing happened. This is like the quick and dirty version (laughs) Alcibiades fucked off oh can I not say that yeah no no I Um, say fuck all the time it's my 90% of my show and then I mean I do know that because I listen to your show (laughs) (laughs) I appreciate you being conscious (laughs) (laughs) and yeah so he's gone so Nikias takes over the Sicilian expedition and it is a disaster for the Athenians. This is really like a, a turning point in the Peloponnesian War for the Athenians. And, you know, like a lot of people hate Alcibiades and with good reason. 
<laughs> I know very little about him that isn't uh, a feature of Assassin's Creed Odyssey, I'll admit, but I definitely <laughs> yeah. learned the Herm story at some point, which yeah. is a true thrill. Yeah, and how good-looking he thinks he is. <laughs> well, I mean, that is yeah. clear from Odyssey. Like, they just have him walking around with no clothes and asking for sex all of the time. It's wonderful. Yeah. He's a man who's got tickets on himself, as my mum would say. <laughs> how did uh, we get yeah. on? <laughs> I, I mean, <laughs> to the just the <laughs> dicks everywhere, basically, but I'm happy to talk about it. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. This is it, your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union, a savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA. Oh, yeah. Okay. There are no so, dicks in Alcestis, but. <laughs> no. Well, there's Admetus. True, true, true. I actually, that's funny you say that because at one point I just, is it, no, I think I call Heracles a dick because the the way that his, his whole um, discussion with the attendant, <laughs> when he's like, you really should be nicer to me. Like I'm a guest right now. Like, why aren't you happy? Why aren't you dancing around? Why is everyone so sad? God, like yeah. it's just, I know someone it, died, yeah. but it wasn't someone important. <laughs> yeah. That's the thing oh. about this whole, like the structure of this play is so interesting because it just bounces so quickly between these, 
these moments that I, I think are certainly meant to be taken, like at least mostly comedic because it feels impossible not to. And I, you know, I tragically don't read ancient Greek, but the translation I'm using is, I mean, it's really, I, I certainly like it. It's Rachel's kit, Rachel Kitzinger's. Um, but it, it's just like, it just is so impossible not to read these bits as funny because they're so like, I'm going to reveal this thing to the audience that the other person doesn't know. And then the other person's going to find out about it in the most awkward of ways. Yeah. And it, it's just so like overtly wonderful in that way. Like, like, no, no, no. Uh, yeah, my wife, she's kind of living and she's dead. Like, oh yeah, she's shredding as Alcestis. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like she's living and she's dead. Oh, so, so it's okay. You're not mourning anyone important. No, no, some other lady no, no, no. died. It's, it's, totally fine it's fine go inside i've got something to do over here but you go ahead inside yeah and then he just proceeds to get drunk and yeah yeah get drunk and start singing doing the thing that like hours before had been promised would not happen in that house but like it's heracles he's getting drunk i love that it's very explicit he is drinking his wine unmixed unmixed did not even put any water in it he's an absolute lush can you believe it and yeah just and then the the whole story with the attendant and then the reveal and like the really slow reveal of like uh like heracles has this whole speech about well you know i'm gonna teach you about life and death you only live once all of us are gonna die eventually you should have some fun (laughs) attendant's like I mean, like, this is just not really the time, though. <laughs> like, yeah. Like, yeah. And then that he's, like, just immediately, like, stereotypically Heracles. He's like, yeah. well, obviously I'm going to go and rescue her. <laughs> like, obviously the only solution. For one, also, he, like, the attendant finally reveals that it's Alcestis. And, and Heracles, like, does not say a word well i guess he does say a word to him at some point he the attendant says something that like definitely could use a response and instead heracles is like no i'm gonna bring her back from the dead like that's my only solution i was so rude obviously the answer to my rudeness and a thing i did not know i was explicitly not told so like it really ultimately is not his fault <laughs> like but he's like no i was so rude the only answer the only answer to make up for this is i'm just gonna have to bring her back from the dead like that's just that's it that's the only possible response well you know there's actually some really interesting things to say about heracles's character and like concepts of xenia and philia like Mm. guest friendship and like proper friend friendship um because you know like heracles is obviously uh, in other euripides plays and elsewhere you know this all or nothing character like he is in in for a penny in for a pound and I think like you know he is about taking things to their extreme and this really is taking you know that guest bond that ritualized friendship that Heracles and Admetus have whether they have like a proper like a genuine friendship what we might call a friendship or not or whether they just have this ritualized friendship kind of doesn't matter because but we know they're not strangers which is interesting they're not he's not just like rolling up on a stranger's doorstep like they do know each other because yeah it would be kind of weird if you just well i guess you're heracles like maybe you can just roll up to a king's 
palace. But I feel like that's like, the idea of boy. Xenia anyway, right? So like you can like you can request like a guest host relationship. Yeah. I mean, historically there's some really interesting well, not just historically, but literarily. You know, this is a very elite practice. This is not mm-hmm. something that normal people would have done. Like right. in, you know, and that's what makes it so interesting in the Odyssey um, where Odysseus kind of just goes to all these places. He wouldn't, like you would never as like a shipwrecked nobody get into a palace through ritualized friendship. Like you just wouldn't. It just mm-hmm. wouldn't happen. Like it's a very elite thing, which, you know, that's also saying something about men who things just magically happen for and are <laughs> overprivileged and full of themselves. Odysseus? No. No, never. <laughs> but, you know, uh, Heracles just takes this to the extreme and in his mind I can, like, I can understand for Heracles as the character how he jumps from, oh, my God, I have completely transgressed this ritualized friendship that we have and now I must bring Alcestis back from the dead. And Heracles is really the only person who would get to that point. Yeah, yeah, you you can't see even any other hero saying that. <laughs> yeah. But then also like we know and the audience knows that you know Heracles does go to the underworld. Um he goes to get Cerberus but he hasn't done it yet right no yeah okay yeah. because he's the he's getting the, the labor that he's on mm-hmm. exactly the man-eating yeah. mares yeah uh, so he hasn't got Cerberus yet he hasn't had to do that yet so we know as the audience and the audience the ancient audience would have known that you know, this is actually something that Heracles is capable of doing and will do, you know, and not very many people are capable of doing this. Um, and, you know, most of the other people who do it, fuck it up. Like, well, yeah. Theseus. And Orpheus. <laughs> like, yes. Yeah. That, that's what I find so interesting is that, you know, I mean, yeah, Theseus fucks it up, but in the, oh my God. Anyway, we all love that he fucks it up. Uh, but, But, like, yeah, nobody really successfully does this. And so the fact that the one successful instance, I mean, first, like, of course it's Heracles, but also that it happens in this way is so entertaining to me. Because, like, for one, he doesn't, like, I always imagined he went to the underworld. But it's like, no, uh, it just happens to be, like, right after somebody dies, like, the god of death is just going to be slurping up some blood so you can catch him there, which is magnificent. And so that it that it happened like that is so interesting. Like it's so much more comedic. It's so much more simple. But the fact that it's still this like huge feat, like I I mean, I couldn't think of another instance of somebody being successfully brought back from the dead. No. Yeah. And and so yeah, it, the fact that it happens this way, it's like, what? Like it, it it's just so much more interesting. And and a wrestling match, I mean, granted, I do prefer the translation that's like he squeezed him real <laughs> he tight squeezed him. and he didn't let go. Um, but yeah, I mean, just the fact that that's how it happens and it works. And and I mean, and add to that, that she doesn't get to speak, even though like in terms of the three actor rule, she could have spoken. 
Like, there isn't anyone else on stage that prevents her from speaking. She just doesn't speak. Like, there's just so many really interesting choices being made here. Yeah. And then, so her last, the last thing that she says in the Mm. whole play is farewell um, Mm. when she dies. And then, yeah, she doesn't speak again. I'm just looking up in my, uh, the translation that I read this afternoon, what it is that Heracles does. Oh, great. (laughs) Please. It's one of the only times I've only done one translation because it's all I had, but I really liked it and it's a newer one. Well, I read, um, it's just today I got it out of the library. I hadn't read it before. Anne Carson's translation. Oh, should I have that book? Look, I have that. Damn it, I could have been referring to it this whole time. I didn't realize that the Alcestis was in this. (laughs) Okay, he says... If I lie in wait, I can leap out, grab him, get him in a grip. He won't escape until he sets the woman free. That's what he says when he's going to do it. And then when he gets her back, he just says, I seized him from ambush. Oh, that's boring. It is. Oh, well. The Kitzinger translation's great because it's like, I'm going to squeeze him and not let go. I mean, that's a slight paraphrase, but I'm pretty sure the word squeeze is used. I love that. I love the the image of Heracles squeezing. Yeah, because it's so Heracles. It fits perfectly. Like, it sounds silly, but it also is just like, no, that checks out. Like, he just grabbed him real tight. And he's like, nope, I'm not going to let you go unless you free her. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, the the whole thing is just so interesting. But the the other like big comedic chunk, because I feel like the it begins with like the, you know, the bizarre kind of like God introduction. And then the first sort of third is, is sort of the 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 more obvious tragedy, the the sad part is just like the first third of the play where we just watch Alcestis die. And it is quite emotional. Like there's the whole thing with her children. You know, it's quite it's that's the sad part. And she dies. Like, she actually dies. We see her die. Yes, yes, yes. So, yeah, the only, like, unambiguous death, right? Which is so unusual. The only other time that I can think of that I'm pretty sure in Extant Tragedy where someone dies on stage is uh, Hippolytus. And, again, the actual thing that's caused his death happens off stage and he's, like, dragged on right at the end. Mm, That's interesting. Um, and it, it's really just to torture Theseus. But most deaths in tragedy involve violence in some way. And there is a sort of like quiet violence in Alcestis's death um, as, you know, like a sacrifice. Um, sometimes it's kind of referred to almost as a, uh, a suicide. But she just dies. She just dies. And it, it's interesting that it happens on, actually on stage that we see it, um, and then that the laments are sung over her body, which is still just sitting there with her children, which is horrific. I, I was thinking about that as well. Um, oh yeah, so this the introduction here um, says that in the that this is more a little bit more unambiguous than Hippolytus, because she says the title character could be alive barely at the close. Because I guess they don't announce that he's dead. Is that what, or maybe if this is, um, yeah. Because I think it ends with like right at that point where Theseus is like, "Oh my god!" and 
um, mm. Artemis says, "Oh, I've got to go because I can't, I can't see you. I love you, but I can't see you die uh, because I'm a god. Um, I can't be tainted with you. Be like, yeah." And then she leaves. Well, that that's interesting because that, that's what Apollo says too. As soon as he gets yeah. has Thanatos there, he's like, "Well, I can't watch Alcestis die. I gotta leave." Yeah. But that, I mean, that's also different because Apollo is, doesn't really have a relationship with uh, with Alcestis. His relationship mm-hmm. is with Admetus. But, like, gods in general, uh, uh, in tragedy, don't hang around to watch people die, mm-hmm. which, like, they do in so much other literature. Mm-hmm. So, okay, hold on. I So I found the other... Um... Uh, translation um so the kitzinger one that i read was if i ambush him and and grab hold clasping him in the circle of my arms and crushing his ribs no one will release him until he gives up the woman to me oh that's amazing like the idea of crushing thanatos's ribs yeah it's it's so uh uh, like explicitly like nope i'm gonna grab him and not let go yeah (laughs) particularly yeah. <laughs> because like so when he first comes on like right at the beginning the only time we see Thanatos we know he's got a sword we don't know anything else about how he was presented but mm-hmm. it's probably most likely that he is presented sort of like as a warrior because that's mm-hmm. how iconographically we normally see him so I think you know a lot of people kind of imagine Thanatos as like more of a grim reaper kind of Mm -hmm. drawn and sullen and with his like big flowy cape and whatever but actually he probably would have been presented as like relatively young and fit and strong and in the guise of a warrior and he's got a sword and so the idea of Heracles being like I'm just gonna grab him and squeeze him and crush his ribs (laughs) is even better and it's even more Heracles. Yeah, it just suits. It suits so perfectly. I yeah, I really I really enjoyed it. You were talking about the comic interludes. Oh, yeah, well it, just yeah, the way that it is kind of like separated off. So Alcestis dies, it is very sad and then it sort of immediately transitions to comedy because Heracles comes on and it and we have this like very weird interaction where where like we were saying earlier Adventus specifically is like she's not dead and she's not dead and uh you know kind of a back and forth like what exactly is going on but ultimately it's like no heracles i insist (laughs) you stay come on in and then immediately we get the father who who's definitely the next character i want to talk about because it it's just so interesting because i don't the way i read it admetus does not get any redeeming moment like he is just continually ridiculous and he just like he doesn't concede anything he's just like you should have died for me and now i hate you because you didn't and his father has such well said and like reasonable arguments to be made like i think one line is like you didn't die for me why should i die for you or you wouldn't and so why should i or there's another that's like you like your life why wouldn't I like mine? Like, it's just so explicitly like, so no, people shouldn't have to die for one another. That that doesn't make 
make me a bad father uh, because I didn't want to. Like, think about this rationally yeah. here. I'm not a bad person. And and literally, like, he just has all these deeply rational, rational and reasonable points. And then Adventist is like, no. No. no, you should have died for me. There is no other options. I will not listen to anything you say or take any constructive criticisms on how I have handled the situation. That's it. Like, yeah. And then you can really tell that fairies just gets completely like exasperated when he, yeah. he and snaps and he kind of has that like, are you just going to like keep marrying people so you never have to die? <laughs> like, yes. how is this going to work for you? And that kind of is the moment where I think you know because then after that is it after that or before that I think it's after that that Admetus then kind of goes on his like well I don't have any parents Alcestis is my parents now Alcestis is my mother and my father and goes on this like deeply weird cutting himself off from like everything uh and yeah just has a tantrum yeah at one point he's like you're not even my parents to begin with like i bet you you guys stole me from somebody and snuck me into the palace and pretended like i was my mother's son like he he's just it's so over the top that's i think how he starts the conversation so he really starts it off with a bang of yeah uh, yeah really just really nice and reasonable guy it's just it, it's so interesting because it is truly like you are not supposed to I mean I think in other points you are supposed to sympathize with him for sure like he he is sympathetic in in other parts of the of the play but in this moment speaking to his father like he is not remotely sympathetic at all he's just so over the top and and ridiculous yeah he's I know I keep saying this but like he is an overprivileged, posh white man who went to Oxbridge even though he didn't deserve it. <laughs> you know, like he is that type of type, or went to an Ivy even though he because his dad made a massive financial contribution to Harvard. You know, he is that person, mm-hmm. and at every point, his tantrum. Every point of that conversation with his dad, you know, his increasing throwing his toys out the pram tantrum (laughs) just reinforces that. And you can see almost that like dawning realization where his dad is like, oh my God, I probably did this. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It's like, okay, dude, like, if this is how you're going to be, like, I'm not going to deal with you like yeah it's so reasonable it's like i wouldn't i wouldn't deal with that no yeah like die for yourself yeah yeah just like you can't put every everything onto others like you have to take responsibility for like at least one thing in your life just like a tiny bit of responsibility even the chorus seems to try to get him to do that at certain points you know like they're they're really on his side throughout but there's there's one moment where he's complaining about death and and how he didn't die instead of her which is hilarious like there's so many times where he was like there's no point in living i might as well be dead along with her we'd both be dead and it's like you know that there was that an alternative was, yeah <laughs> like, this never had to be her let alone both of you 
but yeah, at one point the chorus stops him and they're like, you made this decision. You knew what was going on. Like what, what exactly are you doing now? Like, what is the point kind of, of, of your, all of your expositions about this? Because yeah. it really is like constant. I had to stop myself in, even in the episode from just repeatedly like judging him it by re- like reciting all of his points is like, every time he says something, I just want to scream back. Like you did this. You made yeah. this decision. This did not happen at random. We would all feel really bad for you if she died for almost any other reason. Other reason, yeah. Yeah. Like, we really would. You could be narcissistic as hell, but if your wife died because, you know, through some actual tragedy, like, you're going to be a more sympathetic character. But instead, it's like with every complaint, he just gets worse and worse. But uh, because I read this in the moment, it's a like it happens to me with most I think I've covered all of the plays that I have read in the past so now I'm constantly like reading things for the first time as I write the story and it almost works better because often there's like reveals that I do accidentally or like I was writing the first episode of this and and I did find myself sympathizing with Adventus and I was I was pretty explicitly like I don't think this is going to last but I'm going to tell you right now that for right now like as he's with his wife dying you do feel for him you know that like yes he made this decision and like it's not ideal and please stop making her into a martyr it's a real bummer (laughs) Um, but at the same time like you do feel for him and then the more he talks and the more he reveals about himself you're like nope I don't at all I'm sick of you I'm over it like get out of here because he only ever talks about himself yeah yeah and and how great she was everyone only ever says how great she was what a good and noble wife a wife who will die for her husband it's like she she's not like penelope but i feel like there's such a similar vibe of like the thing that makes you perfect is so unreasonable like the thing that makes penelope perfect is just that like she didn't want any of these other guys and the thing that makes alcestis perfect is that she just killed herself for her husband like yeah that is not a thing that should make anybody an ideal human <laughs> let alone no it. i mean of course the key is it's an ideal woman an ideal exactly. woman will choose a man's life over hers um i don't sort of want to get really bogged down into like the vocabulary uh, of mm. the play but also that's fun um sometimes yeah so she is called best, uh, you know, as you just said. Um, mm-hmm. Aristos uh, is, you know, this common masculine word mm. for this kind of like bestness uh, that we find of uh, men all over the place, like in Homer and tragedy and in everywhere. Um, and she is called. And that's really uncommon uh, to have this kind of very male-dominated-esque word applied to a woman. Um, Mm -hmm. And at one point, and this doesn't, like, come out, um, at one point uh, Admetus refers to her in the masculine and that doesn't Mm. come through in a translation because we don't have you know, masculine uh, agreements and it's, uh, you know, a word which wouldn't obviously translate uh, 
into the masculine. Um, but he does refer to her in that way. I think it's in the section where he's uh, talking to his dad about his now relationship to her now mm. that she's dead and she was the best and he kind of goes through that talking about how uh, his dad could have saved her and doesn't such a reasonable request so reasonable so Ari's dead it's never used of a woman in Pindar or Aeschylus it's only used of women three times in Sophocles but mm. Alcestis is called Ariste nine times on nine separate occasions in this play. Um, she gets called glorious. Even um, Ferez says that Alcestis made life for all women more glorious. So, oh, like, yeah. she's kind of put this, like, nobleness is really kind of thrust upon her um, and almost like a glorification of her um, in this very kind of masculine way through her death. You know, this is one of the points that I think Seagal makes in uh, Female Death, Male Tears. Such a great name for an article. It is so perfect. That, you know, death masculinizes. Uh, Alcestis and feminizes Admetus um, mm. in his grief and his failing. You know, he takes on these really uh, stereotypically female activities, lament, grief, you know, um, this outpouring, uh, which is very traditionally um, a, a female role. But he doesn't take on any of the physical female roles in the preparation of death. Mm -hmm. Alcestis does that herself. Mm -hmm. You know, before she dies, she washes her body. She anoints herself for death. Um, and that's really interesting uh, that, you know, even in that he's emotionally feminized but doesn't take on physical female roles. He does say explicitly that he's going to become a mother to his children. Yes. That part was so notable. Th this, um, the translation I've used has really great footnotes for stuff like that. So it was very, very helpful when it comes to, yeah, the, the kind of clarifying that stuff that doesn't come across just in a straight translation in, into English. Um, but I was curious, like there is also a line where uh, he it's he's noted to have cut his hair is that a thing men did or is yeah, that a everybody did, that. did okay cool yeah yeah yeah, yeah. um hair cutting is like a really interesting general thing that happens at a lot of different points of people's lives mainly around rites of passage um and in a sense uh in that way mourning is a rite of passage. It's it's mm. the, the the cutting of hair is the celebration of the rite of passage for the person who's died. Um, and that's, you know, you can see a parallel between like a funerary procession and a marriage procession. Um, and that's why the end of this play kind of works uh, mm. as that, you know, we talked about the, the wrist-grabbing um, mm -hmm. marriage motif 
but that action turns this funerary procession into a, a wedding procession um, because they contain all the same elements. It's just sort of the difference between like singing laments and singing praise songs. Mm-hmm. Um, so essentially you just make your like sad songs happy and it's the same thing. So interesting. And I was curious too, like just in relating all the stuff around her death. So, and I think you briefly mentioned this and I meant to clarify, but so she would have been like, obviously she does die on stage. That's like a huge, big part of this. Um, And then like based on, you know, what we can figure out, obviously stage directions are always inserted by the translator, but it, it seems to me that, uh, that she remains on stage. And so there was probably an actor on stage as a dead woman throughout a lot of it. If not, like, do you think that basically, do you think that they would have switched it out at some point or would it? No, I think, uh, no, I think she would have, her body would have been taken back in inside the house after the after she dies and the chorus sings this long lament. um, Mm -hmm. And, Admetus proclaims that there's going to be this year of mourning and then he and the Mm -hmm. children go back inside. I think her body would have been taken back inside at that point um, because later the stage is completely cleared twice, Mm -hmm. which is also really unusual. And for that to work, her body has to not be there. Yeah. It's just that before, like basically when he comes out, to go bury her that's when he sees his father before he's left so like at least in these stage directions it has the body coming out with him to go bury her but maybe that wouldn't necessarily have happened just because it basically that's all to just get to the point of it seems to me that having her body there on stage while he and his father have this like absurd bickering fest oh i think her body comes back out yeah so it would have been there for yeah. that yeah yeah, yeah. which because just feels so powerful yeah they have to kind of and then they would take it away on their yeah funerary procession exactly and then then like then they're gone again and the stage is cleared yeah 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 because the the idea of a father and son having that argument while her body is just it's there just, alongside them is yeah. it's just it adds so much to the absurdity of the whole thing yeah quite a common piece of stage equipment was this kind of wheeled mm-hmm. platform mm-hmm. Um, and they would have just like she probably would have been the the actor he mm-hmm. would have been sitting on that as she the character died and then it just would have mm-hmm. been wheeled back in and probably, yeah. like I imagine, then she would have come back out. He, mm-hmm. she would have come back out again on um, the Echiquema, mm-hmm. but as laid out. Uh, so, you know, laid out and shrouded. Um, right. And, right, right. you know, like these days, if you were to stage that, you probably wouldn't even have a real person there. And it, mm-hmm. you know, could be likely. We don't, we don't know. It could be likely that there wouldn't be a real person. It just would have been like, I don't know, some cushions Mm -hmm. or whatever. One thing I have to remind myself more and more as I 
study these plays because they are so different from myths in that way is the idea of masks too and how those would have been used in any given play and it's something I want to I just want to make sure I like say it more I guess in in my retellings as I often forget um or like it's more it lives in my head and so I forget to remind people but I think it is so it adds so much to imagine that everyone is wearing these masks for their characters yeah there's actually a really also interesting thing here about masks and, you know, perhaps the technical details of Admetus's mask. Ooh. Is it that Admetus's mask at the beginning has long hair and then the mask has shorn hair, cut hair, or is that something which is then just implied mm-hmm. by the audience. Like, to what extent would the masking have also reflected other aspects of the characters that change? Mm-hmm. Because he couldn't have had cut hair in that first scene because mm-hmm. she has not died yet. Um but then he very clearly does when he comes back out later. So is that something which, and again, you know, like we can hypothesize about this until the cows come home and we'll never know. But, you know, it's an interesting, do we hypothesize that the masks in some way also had or or showed hair changing? Mm-hmm. Well, even just you saying that makes me wonder too, because while she is dying, there are a lot of references made to how she is like kind of already half dead. Um, like she, there's a, there's a lot of notes about, you know, she's living and she's dead. She is half dead already. So I almost wonder like, would he have prepared himself already? Like would his hair have been short already? And that's, maybe part of the referencing that they're making to her being living and dead and even to his character being so prepared for her death because it's happening instead of his that he's like she's so half dead already that he's already started mourning because there are also references and granted it is after she dies but like Heracles makes another like a couple of references too of like well I know your wife's going to die but like you shouldn't be mourning her until she's actually dead like when Admetus is pretending that she isn't and so, yeah, it's just, I don't know. It, that's, it's interesting to just think of how, how much he and his personality, which we know to be so deeply about his own grief and victimhood in this situation, that, like, how much would he have prepared in advance for his wife's death? Yeah. Imagine, like, watching this on stage for the first time. Mm, yeah. I, I mean, I just, like, just even the experience of reading it blew my whole mind. It's one of the only times I've done, and granted it's also because I'm on time constraints, but like where I I wrote all three episodes of this play in the course of three days. And and that means like, I mean, obviously reading it, but also like piecing it all out and basically writing like 14 to 15,000 words on this play over the course of three days. And I'm just kind of like... it was not only like that alone is an interesting experience, but also it is just, it just kept surprising me. It kept, it it just kept getting more and more like absurd in the most 
like interesting and fascinating. I use those words too often because I'm constantly feeling that, but like it just completely blew my mind and just kept doing it. Like I, I, number of times that I said out loud to nobody in my apartment, like, what is this play? <laughs> like, what is it doing? What is going on? Like, I, I mean, I've read more Euripides than anyone. Granted, it's because we have more, but also because I love him. And even still, I was like, what's happening here? What are you doing? I love wondering. Like, I just want to talk to Euripides so bad. But I think that all the time. Okay, so can I tell you something which is going to blow your mind again? Please. So Sater plays are traditionally much shorter than traditional tragedies. Oh, another question I had. Keep going. Great. And so the audience would perhaps have been expecting this to end mm. around kind of line 900-ish, which mm. is, so there's still just over 200 lines to go. And or where people would have expected it to end would be uh, sort of around where Admeta says to Heracles, he has just brought uh, this woman back to her, uh, says, I, I have won this woman in a, a contest. Uh, Admeta says to him, don't beat me while I'm down. I look on her and see my wife. She makes my heart pound, my tears fall, how bitter grief tastes. And so that, or another hypothesis that scholars have, is slightly before that, before Heracles comes back, just after the chorus have sung their final lament, Mm. and then that would be the end. So both of those points are, you know, deeply deeply tragic points of the play and then it goes on it takes a hundred lines or so for Heracles to convince Admetus to take Alcestis back and then all of a sudden it's like this resolution that Mm -hmm. the audience probably wouldn't have been expecting like they would have had this kind of cathartic uh grief-filled moment we you know one imagines at either of these two like the lament point or this woman who the audience maybe knows is or has surmised is Alcestis and Admeta says no take her away I can't do it Mm -hmm. and then that's the end but then it goes on and it's like this lovely happy ending well and it's another that's the second the third like third of the play, you know, being the in when I'm looking at it in all these like weird little comedic chunks, but because the the interactions between Heracles and Admetus while they he's trying to convince her to t- him to take Alcestis is ridiculous. Like all I can see is Heracles like winking dramatically or like basically like like a nudge nudge like hey like get take this moment come on doesn't. Yeah. Like, oh, you already said she looks like your wife. Like, oh, no, I promise. Like, I know things. Like, you should take her. Uh, Like, it's just so, it's so not serious, I guess. Yeah. And Admetus being so willfully idiotic about it. Yes. Like, because one of the first things he says is, you look just like my wife. And then he goes on to be like, no, I won't take her. Never. And it's like, you know, 
if someone bought, I mean, like, I guess if he had just died, this would be, like, quite freaky. But if someone brought my husband to me wearing a veil, I would still know that it's him. You would hope, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Like a veil, it's she's not completely covered. She's veiled because he says she looks like her. Yeah, it's like, he looks just like my. She looks just like my wife. Ugh, it's just. Oh, uh, it's just so beautiful. It's it's such an incredible play. I'm never gonna get over it. It is. So okay, I've, there's one more thing that I really want to tell you about. Please, um, which is not to do with the content of this play as much as it is to do with the context of the play, which I think makes it even more, like, immensely fascinating, deeply, deeply fascinating. So, as we know, this is presented in the position of a Seder play. But is this Euripides willfully misinterpreting uh subversively misinterpreting maybe a law that a new decree that the uh, ecclesia the assembly um had passed in the previous year 44039 um under the archon uh, which forbids comic satire now this is probably about actually forbidding, uh, make directly making fun of well-known politicians, public mm-hmm. figures, you know. Um, but because there's a lack of technical language about uh, person-focused satire, um, making satirical comments about public figures, and because they perhaps didn't want to be like, don't make fun of us. The way that the decree is written is very vague and so it is just uh, about forbidding comic satire. So is this the presentation of this play, Euripides presenting a non-Sater play in protest? And is that a part of why this play is so off-tap ridiculous? that it's like a tragedy, a comedy, it's like Heracles being Heracles. It's like it's got everything. So there is also this, like, and we know that Euripides plays with local, uh, not local, contemporary politics in other ways. Um, I mean, Mm. other um, playwrights do too, but Euripides particularly is very politically engaged in his work. Perhaps even more interestingly, the next year in 437, a comic playwright, Callias, presented a co- an old comedy, like a comedy, but in that style of old comedy, called Satyrs, which is lost, unfortunately. But what we think it essentially was, was the satyrs from Euripides' satyr play the year before complaining about the fact that they had just been missed, that they had been missed out of their own play. (laughs) I love all of that. I know, it's amazing, isn't it? It's just like, 
I mean, interesting generally, like the idea of of it as a protest and all of those things. But I mean, separately, completely comedically, like just the idea of being like, that's a great comedy idea. Like, where were they? <laughs> like when yeah. Euripides was writing Alcestis. Yeah. Do we and that do we know it's presented because it's not a satyr play. It's yeah genuine comedy, and so it would it that is also quite subversive. In its right. own way. to like put satyrs into a comedy when they're typically reserved for a satyr play. Yeah, but then also that they're like complaining about the fact that they, you know, like so it it's this kind of very meta circular. Yes, like, and in my you know head canon, can can we call history things head canon? I guess we can, right? In my own yeah. like headcanon hypothesis about this, it's Callias being like intentionally bringing up this political issue so that people don't forget about it because they, you know, the comic playwrights were the ones who really were constrained by this decree. Right. So is it about like Callias being like, hey, don't forget, we're not allowed to make fun of politicians anymore. And you guys like you guys being the audience. You guys like it when we make fun of politicians because, you know, it's hilarious. But then there's also another part of me that's like, this is a play that Callias's play, Satire, uh, Satyrs, um, that is deeply written for one person and one person only, and that is Callias. Yeah. Maybe Euripides. Yeah. Know? So it has an audience of two. And I, I just love that. But then, you know, I also love that, you know, we, as I, I said already, you know, we know that Euripides is really politically engaged and the fact that he's making, potentially making this protest play um, about uh, a theatrical decree that doesn't really concern him, like it doesn't really have anything to do with the type of plays that he predominantly produces, writes, um, and so there's also kind of like something really lovely about, you know, that the deeply unselfish nature of writing a political protest, a, a piece about a political protest piece that has nothing to do with the art that he personally makes um, mm-hmm. and really has very little to do actually with like anything that's politically important you know like I know we can say that um you know the constraining of the ability to make fun of politicians is damaging uh to public policies but in a a direct democratic system um you know maybe it isn't as damaging as it is like when you know we have like constraints on the press um but also I think it's like just to kind of bring it round to you know be one of those people who does this um like it's actually really pertinent right now Mm -hmm. with that you know huge debates about cancel culture um and freedoms of the press and you know what it means to be allowed to make fun of public figures mm-hmm. um and so I think that that's really pertinent as well and I think it's mm-hmm. also something probably not a lot of people know about Alcestis and the context of it so yeah 
No, I think that adds so much. I mean, I think, I mean, it not only adds so much, but I also think it does like at least suggest a, a, a bit of an answer as to yeah, why it's so weird, why it doesn't fit. What like yeah. it, it is just so very out of place, you know, and, and that alone, I mean, I, yeah, it, that alone so interesting. So to have like a, a possible answer or at least like a contributing factor mm. is wonderful. And then in one sense, does that, you know, obviously again, hugely couched, this is clearly a hypothesis and something we'd never be able to know. But with all the constraints off, does that mean that this is the type of play that Euripides himself wanted to make? Mm-hmm. You know, as a piece of, uh, you know, because li- uh, theatre is so deeply constrained in so many ways both you know tragedies and say to plays and comedies and so is this like a well if there's no rules if I'm going to break the rules I may as well create the work that I you know want to write mm-hmm. though again mm-hmm. heavily couched that's a still it's interesting yeah. yeah it's just interesting it's an, yeah it's interesting to think about yeah I, I find Euripides generally to just be, I mean, and, and I need to just basically settle down and read every single one of his plays that we have. Um, but uh, like he, his work is just so different in a lot of ways to the others in a lot of ways that I personally just like enjoy and identify with, but also in a lot of ways that just does make him seem to be more of like a rule breaker, like more interested in in like playing with what he's doing, maybe less interested with the actual winning of contests and more interested with what he is saying and how and like making statements about life and the world through his work. Yeah. And so, yeah, just to have that additional thing, like you know, I couldn't, I couldn't see this play being written by Sophocles or Aeschylus, you know, like, yeah, no, they just wouldn't be interested in the things like a lot of what I talked about in, in just generally discussing it is like, he seems to be just kind of examining the question of sacrifice and life and death and familial obligations, like what you should and should not expect from your family members, like what they should and should not have to do for you. And, and like, he does kind of seem to suggest how he feels about it, but he also doesn't like, you know, it, he's just kind of like voicing these thoughts without like hammering in a point to you. He's just making, hmm. making like, he, it's like, he's just philosophizing on stage, yeah. you know, like there isn't an end moral point. He's just like s- spouting off thoughts and ideas and like playing with them before an audience. Yeah. But these are themes that, you know, he comes back to again and again in both the Iphigenias, um, in his Electra, um, mm. you know, in his Heracles plays, these sorts of ideas about the home and the family. I mean, even though, you know, obviously Aeschylus deals with these themes and Sophocles deals with these themes, but they don't deal with them in this, like, homely, genuine way that Euripides does. Um, mm-hmm. And that's, you know, one of the things that I think is so resonant about Euripides 
as a playwright, like why mm-hmm. so many people's favourite playwright is Euripides. Um, not mine, but, you know, it is. And undergraduates in particular, I think, find Euripides a lot easier to to approach um, because he mm-hmm. does deal with these sort of like homely sorts of themes in really genuine ways. I like him a lot for his violence, but also yeah, fair. all of these things. <laughs> yeah. I'm like, that guy in Medea, just give me all the gore and the like gods fucking with people. Yeah. But, but I mean, even yeah. even in that, you know, that violence, like Medea, um, you know, mm. the Heracles plays, Hippolytus, you know, that violence also plays with what it means to be in relationships with people and mm-hmm. how much you can expect people to give of you and for you um or for you and how much of yourself you you know realistically have to expect to give and and sort of what it means to be desperate uh Mm -hmm. within these relationships comes down to like i just want to talk about greek tragedy all of the time i mean god thank you so much for doing this this is so much fun i i'm so glad you wanted to talk about this play and also like kind of spurred me to to cover this play <laughs> so thank you but no i i mean i genuinely think everybody should read it um probably before any other play except maybe euripides helen mm. but yeah that alcestis is wonderful like i can't there's no no. She is the best and it is the best. Yeah. Yeah, I mean I love weird. I'm like give me all the weird. So it was just extra thrilling. I think that's why I like Euripides too. Because he goes for weirder. Yeah. Yeah. He is weird. Yeah. He's far more weird yeah. than Aeschylus or Sophocles. Well, I mean again, yeah, thank you so much. But why don't you uh tell my listeners where to find you? Is there anything you want to promote or share? Um, I don't think there's anything I want to promote. I would like to thank uh both Kate Cook and Emma Cole for listening to me uh spout shit about Alcestis for the last <laughs> two weeks. No, for the last <laughs> couple of days while I kind of fully pulled all my thoughts together for this um you can find me on twitter uh, at ellie m roberts on tiktok at ellie mac and roberts uh that's pretty much it wonderful i'll link to all those things because you really are pro- putting out some incredible tiktok content and i oh i love tiktok except when i get things taken down for community guidelines <laughs> violations because i've just posted like a whole pile of pictures of men sucking dicks <laughs> i mean but it's great pottery it's art it's fine yes and it's so good <laughs> Ugh, Euripides, am I right? 
Thank you all so much for listening. As always, it is just so fun. And a huge thank you to Ellie for coming back on the show. And stay tuned because she's going to have more amazing things to share with us in the future. For now, though, make sure you follow her on TikTok for some truly fascinating ancient Greek content. I am such a fan. Frankly, I'm just so thrilled to have learned more about Euripides and Alcestis, but obviously I've always loved Euripides because Medea and Bacchae and so much more, but I'm just becoming more and more interested in him as like a person and in learning about the actual process within these tragedy competitions, like how and why they were staged and how that might have influenced the content of the actual plays themselves. And oh man, did Ellie deliver on that. I learned so much. I wrote so much down. It was so much fun. Fucking Athenian tragedy is so cool. All right. Do you think I've yelled about Euripides enough? Never, right? I agree. (laughs) But it's enough for now because I am working to create so much more content in advance for you guys uh, so that I can go to Greece and, well, write some cool things that hopefully you'll read one day. Plus, I hope to share lots of content with you uh, over there on my Instagram and Twitter and maybe more live Q&As from Greece to come. That is for sure. So stay tuned and follow me if you don't already. It's just Smith's baby everywhere. All right, now I'm talking too much about not Euripides, uh, and that is not acceptable. This is all about him and the brilliance that is the Alcestis. Let's talk about Myths Baby is written and produced by me, Liv Albert. Michaela Smith is the Hermes to my Olympians. She just is perfect and wonderful and handles so many things for the podcast. Stephanie Foley works to transcribe the podcast for YouTube captions and accessibility. The podcast is hosted and monetized by Acast. Thank you all for listening. It means the whole fucking world to me that you love this show and that you love these conversations and that you love them enough to send me to Greece is truly life goals. You are all the best. I am Liv and I love this shit very much. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee visit rightrug.com that's r-i-t-e-r-u-g.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you 24-month financing is available with approved credit for 90 years we've been right here right now right rug flooring this is it your moment this is your time to make your comeback with purdue global When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do, too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. 
If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union, a savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA. 